Well, it's New Year's weekend, a time for looking back. This is Mike Meenan with Cough Switch. In my own case, I found a technician who was able to fix my ailing Sony TCM5000 audio cassette recorder, which gave me access to tapes from my past life in Palm Springs, California, as a radio news director and talk show host. In early 1984, almost exactly 40 years ago, I interviewed author and award-winning media personality Larry King, who passed away in 2021. At the time of our interview, he and his trademark suspenders had not quite started their long-running gig at CNN, but he did have an overnight radio show originating in Washington, D.C. He was in Palm Springs for a convention and granted me the interview for my own show. As presented here, it runs about half an hour, and I hope you'll enjoy this change of pace. I did cut out the commercials, at least. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mike Meenan, and we are pre-recorded today. It's not our usual habit, but um, Larry King is a very busy man. He has his own show to do. He's uh, one of the guests of honor at the California Broadcasters Convention at the Sheraton Plaza Hotel, which is where we are doing this interview now. This uh, was done earlier this afternoon. And I thought rather than pass up the chance to talk to Larry this way, I should at least uh, get a pre-recorded interview with him. If you want to talk to him directly, of course, you will have that opportunity. Some of you will get, even get a chance to see him if you get over to the hotel early enough tonight. He will be doing his uh, usual nationwide show live from, I think it's, it's Palm Canyon A and B, those two suites over here. Who are you guests tonight, Larry? Well, we got, uh, Mike, we got Ed Asner coming in from... Uh Los Angeles, who will speak tomorrow morning to this California group, and Don Murray, who's one of my all-time favorite actors, who's flying in to do the show and then going back to L.A. tomorrow. So those two, and then, of course, whenever we do remotes, there are always people in the audience that are interesting, and we have a lot of fun. It's very different than doing the show in studio in Washington. I like to get on the road, and uh, so it's not the same as the normal broadcast. We'll have two guests, maybe three. We do a lot of shtick with the audience. It'll be a lot of fun. This is the first time, obviously, I think you've done a nationwide show out of Palm Springs, but it's not, not the first time, apparently, that you've been here. No, I was in Palm Springs once before, and uh, it was in June of 72. The reason I remember the month, I don't remember the date, I think it was the 16th. But I drove from Los Angeles on a Sunday morning, and I turned on the radio, and I was listening to some station. I was one of clicking around for Palm Beach, for uh, Palm Springs stations. And I hit a station, and the news was on, and the man mentioned that last night, late last night, in Washington, there had been a break-in at the Democratic headquarters at a place called Watergate, which I had never heard of. And I remember saying to myself, what the hell was that all about? That's a great memory of Palm Springs. All right. Is this the first, the show that you do, the first nationwide? You started this in, in 1978. Was, is it the first of its kind? Well, Mutual had tried two things before. This would have to be called the first of its kind. The industry generally calls it the first of its kind. Mutual first in 76 put uh, Herb Jepko out of Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, although what they did was pick up his regular show and send it out on the National Wire as a nightcap show. It really wasn't their show. It was sort of like a test case. That didn't work out. And then they tried Long John Neville out of New York. And Long John was at the end of a career then, pretty ill. 
And what they did was pick up his regular New York show. So both in both those cases, they were taking a Salt Lake City show and putting it on the network and a New York City show and putting it on the network. Then it came to me and they had the idea, let's do it right and let's have our own program based in Washington. Uh, the then president of the network, Ed Little, had heard my work a lot. And so we want a guy who likes a wide variety of interviews, keeps the show moving, keep a pace and all-night flavor. And we think, they thought at the time, that national talk could work. <clears throat> I frankly had my doubts. Uh, I had been raised in local talk, been done for years in Miami. But I was willing to give it the shot, and uh, we started with 28 stations. <clears throat> Those lone band of stations, our largest affiliate city was... Miami, the station where I, where I had worked, and then we had Sacramento and Seattle, and those about the only major markets we had, and we started now, of course, around 280 stations, so it really bored out. I, in retrospect, it's easy to see why it worked, a show coming out of Washington, D.C. I think that was a great move. I'm surprised the other networks haven't come to Washington. It's the best place in the world to do a talk show. You get absolutely super guests. You don't have to do phoners. We never do phone interviews. Everyone's live in the studio every night. I think people like calling Washington. I think the wide variety of the show, the length of the program, the fact that it's overnight, I don't think it would near have worked if we're in the afternoon. I don't think we'd have never gotten the clearances we got. And then it kind of grew. And then the amazing thing was the press attention we got. We got Time and Newsweek stories, and uh, I went on all the national television talk shows. It really kind of just spiraled. You have the Washington guests, but those guests have to... Uh decide they want to stay up and be on the program from midnight to three in the morning. It was tough when we started, especially since we didn't have a Washington station. But then we got WTOP in Washington, which is a 50,000-watt CBS mutual affiliate. And once that came, and they started hearing the promos, and then once we got all the press, when I went on the Today Show, we got a front-page write-up in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times did a Sunday piece. When all that started to happen... Uh, we never get rejections. Now, we get certain people that say, please let me come on a Friday night. It's hard to get up in the morning. But basically, other than Senator Kennedy, who has just far rejectors, we haven't had any rejections at all. So there's been acceptance based on the fact the show is accepted. You have never, uh, as I recall, never implemented any 800 number. Uh, people who call your show have to, you know, have to pay the freight. Uh, since everyone else is doing it, they do have 800 numbers. Why haven't you made that move? Well, of course, that's not my decision. We, You and I both in this business know this called top management. When it started, I think they were hedging a bet, mm -hmm. and that was an investment that they were apparently unwilling to make. Now I wouldn't change it. Uh, we get, we get, I think we get the best callers in radio, uh, although it's very inexpensive on the average call to this show at night. If you call from Palm Springs to Washington, we only answer one ahead. We let the phone ring. So you really, I think the average bill's $1.15. But I think you do get a better caller. We don't screen the calls. We uh, Everybody calls in. If you get in, you get on. You think it, uh, it keeps the callers from uh, going on too long or making speeches or helps them organize their thoughts? If I think all those, things, for it? all those things. And also, I don't let them go on. I, I have a theory about uh, callers. Um, callers are a part of the show. When a caller comes on a program, in my opinion, the host is required to judge that caller. Only 1% of the people ever call. We know that for a fact. In fact, only 1% of America has ever written a letter to the editor. 
call the talk show or call the television station to protest a pro or praise the program. Mm-hmm. So the show is for the 99% that are listening. And as each caller comes on, I judge that caller. Now, it's a judgment call. It's very subjective. Is the caller interesting on the mark? If they're trying to be funny, are they funny? Is the question relative to the guest? Are they making their point clearly? Now, if not, you don't mean to be rude, but you got a show to run. And the best way I could explain it is... The man who runs the letters to the editor column in the Los Angeles Times is going to get 200 letters tomorrow. He's going to print eight. That means 192 he's immediately discarded. He's going to print eight, and of those eight, six he's going to edit. For only one reason, that you read the page. He wants a lively, well-read, well-thought-out page. Well, I got the same job as he has, except all 200 letters get on the air. So I have to make the decision instantly. I don't have the luxury of putting aside this letter and not printing it. Same job. And my, my role, to get the 99% to keep listening. I'm not doing a personal service for each individual caller. And when you fall into that trap, you wind up with a wonderful show for individual callers and nobody listening to you. I've never screened a call in my life. I've never, in the years in Miami that I did this, I'm not, I hate a screen call. Screen calls uh, are done for a couple of benefits. Maybe the audience should know it. One, keep old people off. Uh, keep regulars off. Uh, it puts in the hands of usually of someone 22 years old a decision-making process for a veteran broadcaster who's on the air. A 22-year-old girl or boy just out of college is talking to someone and making a decision as to whether that call should get on the air. If you get into our show, you get on. All right. Another thing that you do that perhaps some of the other um, talk shows don't do is you don't use the first name. Everybody else uses the first name. You use the city, and you've never said you, you still don't use first names. It's not a personal service. I uh, that's not my. I've never been told not to. Mm-hmm. Oh, the format is pretty much our own. They never said to me, "Don't, don't." I just uh, that's always sounded. I got I got nothing really against it. I'm not running a personal service. This isn't Larry and Phil. Mm-hmm. This is the Larry King Show, and you're calling in. Your voice tonight's a waste of time. Hello, Phil. Hello, Larry. Um, the city, I think that sounds good, and that's why we mentioned the city. I think it sounds nice to hear Grand Rapids, Michigan, Palm Springs, California, Miami, Florida. I think that's exciting radio. Names, I don't, I just, it never caught on to me. I don't care. I mean, if they told me tomorrow you got to take names, I'd take names. Well, we will use a name here. We're talking to Larry King. I'm Mike Meenan. We'll be back right after this. Larry King is my guest on the Mike Side Show. We are pre-recorded, but you can hear him live tonight, of course, starting at 9 o'clock. He'll be doing his program right from the Sheraton Plaza Hotel, which is where we recorded uh, this program earlier today. Uh, I read your book. You seem to take a certain amount of, of pride in not preparing uh, for your guests. In other words, you've said, I, I don't read the newspaper clippings about them. I've, if they're authors, I don't read their books. Yeah, you also say in another part of the book that you you like the feeling of maintaining control over mm-hmm. the program. Sure. How can you feel in control, someone may ask, which I'm asking right now, how can you really feel in control if you haven't done your homework? Well, the reason is because I'm an interviewer. I'm not a researcher. I, um, I've i got the luxury on the show. Now, I couldn't say I would do that if I had the four minutes time on the Today Show mm-hmm. in the morning or uh, when I've been in locker rooms doing Miami Dolphin football 
and I have four minutes and with each player, and I've just viewed the event, and I have to go right to the subject. But I, when I started doing a show at a restaurant in Miami Beach, we didn't even know who the guests would be each day. I would get there. We didn't have any producer. It was a real coffee clock show. Whoever came, came. Authors would come with their books. They'd hand them up. We either put them on or not. And I got into the habit of enjoying it. And the less I know, and I can't be dumb and do a show. I read five newspapers a day. I'm, I'm aware that Ed Asner is an actor. I've seen much of his work. I know he's president of the Screen Actors Guild. I do not want to know. Here's what I don't want to know. I don't want to know why Ed Asner became an actor. I don't want to know why he got into union politics. I don't want to know why he ran for president of Screen Actors Guild. I don't want to know his philosophy. Why? Because if I know, then I ain't curious. So how do I sound? I sound researched. And the show would sound to me like, well, Mr. Asner, uh, you uh, got into the Screen Actors Guild because at that time you were turned down for a job in 1969, I know it all. Now, I'm a... I'm ahead of the audience. I don't like to be ahead of the audience. I'm a street interviewer. I'm right out of the streets of New York. I don't go to college. I'm kind of, as my friend Herb Cohen says, I'm a dumb, see? I don't know. Tell me. Why'd you do this? But I'm always in control. It's my show. I take the calls where I take the questions where I want to go with it. I listen to the answers. I choose to follow up on the answer, go to another area. The interviewer is always in control. The worst of interviewers is always in control. Depends on how much they know it. Now, if you give up the control to the guest or to the caller, well, then you're losing control of your show, but hey, you're in control of this right now. You can cut me off, stop me, run this. You're in control. You can continue on this topic, go to another one. You're in total control of this microphone. Have, How you use it is up to you. Have the guests, have some of the guests ever been uh, sort of, oh, I don't know, offended at the uh, idea? Do many of them know that you haven't done this? A lot of the other interviewers do. They come to you. They don't get this kind of treatment, so to speak. Have you ever run into anyone that's been well, I, I've upset run into about it? Some, yeah. I, but basically, I had one guy who was very upset. He did, did a book on Castro. And uh, after the show said, you know, you probably sold more books for us tonight than anybody because you asked questions sincerely asked about the book. See, if I know about the book, I, I got a rule of thumb, Mike. It's a tough rule to live by. I try to live by it every night. I hate to ask a question I know the answer to. I hate to ask a question I know the answer to. If I've read the book, I know the answer to lots of questions. Or presume the audience has read the book, which is dumb, and then ask questions above the audience's head on page 36, you said. Mm -hmm. So I prefer this. Now, sure, I remember once uh, Dr. Teller wasn't a book, but he was uh, ticked because I didn't know anything about physics. And uh, he wanted to know how I could do an interview on physics if I didn't know anything about physics. My point was the best interview about physics would be done by a non-physicist, not a physicist, because a physicist wouldn't be curious. And he said, well, I don't like that. And I said, well, if you're unhappy, just walk out. And he began, I, I began by asking him how come when I was in school and it was trying to take physics, we were all scared. And he lit up and said, beautiful faces, smiled and said, uh, because they teach it wrong, they shouldn't even call it physics. We do, developed a wonderful interview from that native curiosity that I have. Why was physics hard? Why did you become a physicist? Well, as I recall, that was the same uh, interview where, you see, I did read the books on, <laughs> I haven't followed your advice here. That was the same. By the way, I never give advice to others. You have to do what's comfortable to you. For example, I would never say to someone, 
don't be prepared mm -hmm. if their inclination is to be prepared. There are some great prepared. Mike Wallace is the greatest prepared interviewer in the world. Mm -hmm. He would not walk in without 12 pages of notes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tiller, though, is the one person who also said, um, I'll, I'll do the show, but you can't ask me about the H-bomb. Frank Sinatra came on your show and said, I'll do the show, but don't ask me, or, or his PR man said, don't ask him about this. How do you handle a guest or a, a publicity person uh, that tells you, maybe only a couple of minutes before the show starts, well, here's the guest, uh, but you're not allowed to talk about this, this, and that. How do you handle that situation? Well, I never worry about it. If, if the guest is important enough for us to have on, I'll agree to the wishes of a guest. I don't own the guest. Mm -hmm. Frank Sinatra doesn't want to talk about his son's kidnapping, which he wound up talking about. But if he doesn't, mm -hmm. that's none of my business. I don't own that guest. That's his privacy. I don't care to own that. Now, yeah, if Senator Kennedy came on and said, I'd rather not talk about Chappaquiddick, what I would tell the audience is the senator prefers not to talk about it. I would have preferred. But to not put him on because of that would be dumb because I want to learn about a bunch of other things. Now... Supposing the Senator Kennedy said, I don't want to talk about Lebanon, then I wouldn't have him on. Because he's the United States Senator and should expect to answer any question on Lebanon. I might go on with you and say, I don't want to talk about marriage. Now, if you want to have me and talk about marriage, then don't have me. I think there are things a lot more important than honing an interview. And that never bothered me very much. I have a lot of faith in myself to draw people out, tell a wound up, we wound up talking about bombs and we wound up talking about Oppenheimer and... Because in a good interview, those things will come out as you draw someone out. I am also uh, not much interested in the personal lives of people. I, I, I'm not a uh, hand-holding show, and I'm not interested in how many times Anthony Quinn's been married. I think that's immaterial. What's material to me is how he acts and how he performs and what his relationship is to the audience as I view him. When you start like that, you really... When you ask someone, there's, there's not a person alive, Sinatra, Olivier, and drop off. Not a person alive who doesn't like talking about what they do. And when you hone in on what they do, you own them. Because everybody loves to talk about his craft. Everybody. Sinatra loves to talk about singing. That's what he does. All right. You probably had a guest leave you and say, gee, Larry, that was a great interview. If someone uh, <laughs> theoretically had uh, uh, finished a Mike Wallace interview and said to Mike, gee, Mike, that was a great interview, Mike might say, well, if I didn't make them feel uncomfortable, if I didn't challenge them, if they think it was so great, maybe it wasn't such a good interview. How do you well, react to compliments about the job you've just done? I'm very complimented because uh, Peter Ustinov told me once, he says, you're the best interviewer I ever had because I thought about things I never thought about before. Mm -hmm. I, do, I am not um, an investigative reporter, and I don't work on 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. That, by the way, is very easy work to do because they send you out the day before and they've got all this stuff prepared, and you sit down and you spend about two hours with the person. And they're out the purpose of I had Mike on recently. We talked a lot about this. Mike's the best at what he does, the absolute best at confrontational interviews. He's also very good at uh, Mel Torme's non-confrontational mm -hmm. and uh, Billy Eckstein and screen actors. He's very good. He works very well prepared. He's very good. I just come 
from a different source. How much more the who, why? In other words, Mike wants to know why the Shah of Iran ordered 1,400 missiles from the United States. And I want to know why the Shah likes being the Shah. Now, that's just two different approach points. There's never been in the history of annals the perfect interview. No one's ever done the perfect interview. So what you have to do, what pleases you the most, what pleases me the most, is to learn as much as I can about a person and what it is they do. And I find that when I get angry, I lose the one factor I have, which is control. I've had anger. I had anger recently at the head of John Birch Society. And it was not near as effective as it could have been. We're talking with Larry King. We'll take another break and be right back. Larry King is our guest on the Mike Side program. Again, we are pre-recorded. Uh, if you want a chance to call the Larry King show, you will have your usual chance tonight at 9 here on KPSI Talk Radio. We were talking about interviewers and interviewing styles. I never do things or try not to do things that are irrelevant. What I think of a guest, irrelevant. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm now about to ask a great question. Mm. What does that mean? Ask it. Uh, if I have a question run over two sentences, I've asked a bad question. You mentioned that you've been angry a couple of times. Have you ever interviewed someone? Uh, have you ever interviewed someone you knew you disliked going into the show or you violently disagreed with? Uh, and by the end of the show, you had your mind changed about them, either personally or, or uh, you even had your mind changed about the particular issues. That's a very good question. T. Uh, Gordon Liddy. Uh, my mindset was to dislike him intensely uh, as a person who could uh, threaten the life of Jack Anderson, who would uh, steal for his government, etc. But I got to like Gordon Liddy because he's bizarre. And he's wonderfully bizarre. It's a great sense of humor. <clears throat> As a guy who was willing to shut up and <clears throat> become friendly with him, I see him around Washington have lunch with him. Politically, we don't agree on anything. And I love something he said to me <clears throat> that showed his bizarreness and got to like me. In fact, I had some close friends who told me, how can you have him on? How can you even have him on the air? A guy who listened to Hitler marching music as a kid. But I said to I asked him, is it, is it true that uh, you would have killed Jack Anderson? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, supposing I thought you were bad for America and I planned to kill you. He said, all's fair. <laughs> now, anybody that can say, all's fair, you want to kill me, you think it's good for America. And you got to like, I like G. Gordon Lee. That completely threw me. Mm -hmm. It was a guy I expected not to like. Uh, sure, I have opinions change all the time. A good interviewer should. If you stay locked and nobody can sway you, then your curiosity and your mind is an open, and the one thing I take pride in is that I'm open uh, to new ideas. I have opinions, but I am certainly open to new ideas in, in various issues of controversy or areas or shades of disagreement. You know, I used to be for uh, a couple of years ago unilateral disarmament. I would have favored uh, the whole world disarming. I've come to the conclusion now that's not such a smart idea. I'm still in favor of freeze. But I still think countries, realistically, have to stay strong. I'm not happy about it. Who changed your mind? A couple of people. A guy from the Georgetown Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, a couple of senators. It didn't happen in one night. I didn't leave an interview. Now, many times I'll leave an interview and say, boy, and that is an interesting 
viewpoint to that kind of concept. And I like to read people I disagree with. You know, I read uh, National Review a lot. Buckley's <clears throat> opened my eyes to some things. And then you try reverse to open back uh, off the air. I don't give my opinions when I have a guest on. So I don't relate the opinions to the guests. There have been some guests I've disliked, just like George Wallace a great deal. I was prepared to dislike two good movies. I said, I thought Wallace is one of the guys I liked the least uh, because I thought he was an opportunist and I didn't even think he was really a segregationist. You mean he was just playing at it for the Absolutely, sake yeah. of... Absolutely, uh, Well, as shown, as soon as uh, Alabama became more black voters than white, he now has blacks in his administration. There's something about the true racist, Lenny Bruce used to talk about, the true racist. True racists would lose an election. There must be people that you want to get on your show that have so far not been able to make it or refuse all interviews or something. Who Who is uh, your dream interview? So well, there are no dreams left. Uh, Olivier is still a dream. If I had to pick one dream, it Lawrence Olivier, because I, I like theater people a lot, and I like talking to actors, and I think he's the absolute best, and I'd love to explore his mind, and I thought I almost had him a year ago when that book came out, but he didn't come to Washington. He is coming to Washington after Los Angeles doing a play, doing Chekhov. He's going to open in L.A. and then come to Washington. And I will try through Michael Corda at Simon Schuster, who's a friend of his and a friend of mine, okay. to get him on. Uh, the only prominent public figure that I wanted and haven't gotten has been Senator Kennedy. And I think it's because he doesn't want to take phone calls. And that we won't accept. So you can't come on and set a rule like I'll do just an interview and won't do phone calls. We don't do tapes and we don't do phoners and you have to be willing to take phone calls. Now, we've gotten a, ta a, a kind of a... An acceptance from Ronald Reagan, we're going to do it. He says sometime this spring, only we have to come to California to do it, because he wants to do it at 9 o'clock. Mm -hmm. so. Other than that, though, you know, we don't have the... There aren't many giants left. We have an absence of great world leaders anyway. I'd like to do Carlos of Spain. I'd like to do Kodar uh, of Hungary. Mm -hmm. uh, those are two leaders that intrigue me. I'd like to do... Uh, I don't have any great interest in leadership in Israel or Egypt at the moment. Well, I remember when we used to have names all over the world. You just pop them out and want to do the call. There are no the calls. There are no Churchills. And if you could have people come back from the dead and be on your show, you'd probably have uh, plenty of people to talk to. Yeah, boy, would I love to interview some dead people. <laughs> uh, I'd love to interview Lincoln. Jefferson would be Jefferson would be fantastic. Imagine three hours with Thomas Jefferson. I like that thing that Steve Allen did with people out of the past and, and doing interviews with him. I think that, that could be intriguing television. Unfortunately, you know, PBS sort of low-key that. I think that had commercial value, that show. Who asks better questions on your programs, you or the callers? Depends on the subject. I think I always ask good questions. Uh, I don't think I ever ask a dumb question. No questions dumb if you don't know the answer to it, by the way. But I don't think I've asked dumb questions. In certain areas, the call is a far superior. And those are usually things like ABM ballistics missiles. Let's say I do a show on missiles. I, I get into more the general area, philosophical area, but callers call up with. <clears throat> we have 720 MERV warheads, and they have 611. I don't know that at all. Uh, technical subjects. We had an expert on, on stereo equipment, a terrific guy. I approached it completely different the first hour, and the second hour, they really got into stuff I had no idea they were talking about. You know, I have the X-Ray uh, uh, Sony 432, should I hook it up with a 511 speaker? And very often, in fact, 
I take a lot of pride in how many guests tell me that they get the best phone calls on the show. They really appreciate the quality of the caller. People who, for example, uh, I've had authors on that callers had read their books written 11 years ago. You know, guys who'd written... I remember uh, we had on... Uh, oh, the, the gentleman wrote Poland, Michener. Uh, and a guy called up to talk about a short story he'd written. After his first novel was published, he was so impressed with I never heard of that story. What is it about the all-night caller? Well, I'm shocked by it. Uh, I went in thinking that the all-night caller is older and generally an insomniac. And what we've discovered and we've taken in six years now, six major surveys, one in cooperation with Fortune magazine. And our average listener is 32, has two years of college, earns $29,000 a year way above the national average in all three scales. Now, these people are up at night. We have a lot of graduate students that listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of travelers, a lot of young people, a lot of people in the workforce, uh, doctors. I went in for a checkup at Johns Hopkins, and all the medical staff there were regular listeners at night. I'm surprised by it. I did not expect that going in. All right. You've said also that uh, your program can be, particularly on the open phone segment, a barometer of the public mood. Not a scientific, a fair barometer. Fair barometer of the public mood. Uh, when you say you're a barometer of the public mood, are you a barometer, really a barometer of the public mood, or are you, are you, are you a barometer of the types of people who call talk shows? I have no idea. Uh, I, uh, the only way I guess who are a barometer of public mood is that uh, I could have forecast Reagan's victory two months before the election because we got so few pro-Carter calls. Uh, when the when John Lennon died, and the unbelievable amount of calls from all those people under 30, mm-hmm. I knew that this was a major, major, major impact in America. People calling and suddenly that urge to call in. I don't know how good a barometer is. It's certainly not scientific. Uh, what is scientific? Gallup, I think, is the best. And the way he questions people and the way he does polls, he's a good barometer. The people who call don't necessarily that they're the national mood. I think they generally reflect, certainly in big stories, the national mood. For example, uh, it's no secret that I'm a liberal. I have a lot of listeners that follow me closely, yet 85% of my calls were in favor of the Reagan position on the press in Grenada. And I think that was pretty much the national average. Hmm. Hey, so I, th- I think we're a fair but I wouldn't hold it up as a scientific prominent. We're talking with uh, Larry King. We'll take another break, and we'll be back with a few more minutes with him in just a moment. Larry King is our guest on the Mike Side program today. We're doing something with him that he never does with his guests, and that's uh, do tapes. But uh, schedules being what they are, we have to do it this way. For those of you who are wondering about his schedule here, he's being honored tonight by the California Broadcasters Association at the Sheraton Plaza Hotel. They're giving him a a dinner. He's going to be the guest speaker. And then he's going to be doing his program, as we said, starting at 9 o'clock. Among his guests will be Ed Asner, the president of the Screen Actors Guild. you love sports. Why didn't you just stay in? In uh, why didn't you just stay in? Uh, sports? Some days I wish I did. Uh, I uh, yeah, I love sports. It's an avocation <clears throat> I thoroughly enjoy. I would like to take a year off, summer off, and do Major League Baseball for a summer. 
just for the kick of it. I got a chance to do a lot of sports in Miami. I did color on dolphin football for 10 years. Uh, when I did talk shows Monday through Friday, we always did a sports show on Saturday night. Mm -hmm. I worked six nights a week, and Saturday was always sports. I thought I was going to be a sportscaster until I started doing interviews. And then I realized that, one, that's my fort. Two, it's what I like to do best. And three, I have too many interests in too many things to be limited to sports. I think sports would have eventually bored me. Uh, it started to. Football, the last three years I did it, mm -hmm. I was going to the game as a reporter and a professional uh, mm -hmm. that could have been anywhere I <clears throat> think what I do now intrigues me more I get the chance to ask so many people so many questions in so many areas but I have such a love for baseball mm -hmm. baseball in particular that I would like to take just the summer off travel with the team go to the city, spend four days broadcast baseball, so unimportantly important sports have you heard it all yet? You've talked with some interviewers who said, Larry, I've heard it all, and they get out of the business and they go they go on to straight news or they do something else. I'd quit. I've never heard it all. I have no idea. I, if the day I start doing I interviews, uh, I, me, my, uh, the day I stop respecting the guests or not learning something, then it would be a terribly boring thing to do. I learn something every now. I'm going to learn. I'm going to meet <clears throat> two actors tonight, one of whom has got involved in politics. I'm going to really be fascinated by that. I'm going to learn a great deal tonight. Hopefully the audience is going to learn with me. The future of, of talk radio, it's in vogue now. There are so many networks uh, uh, doing it. Uh, you say you you will never get to the point where you've heard it all, but do you think that uh, um, the listening public is eventually going to get tired of talk radio? No, that's like saying you're going to get tired of learning. And to say you're going to be tired of talk is like saying you're going to be tired of news. Something's always happening. Somebody interesting is always writing a book. New actors come along, new sports stars, new personalities, new politicians. We are information junkies. Information junkies in America. We just want to learn more today than we did yesterday. And talk is one, just one, of the avenues of learning. Larry King's been our guest, and again, he's going to be doing his own show live tonight on uh, KPSI. If you want to see it yourself live, here's the best advice I can give you. We'll be in Palm Canyon Suites A and B starting at 9. There's no admission charge. Seats are available on a first-come, 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 first-served basis. And if you want to get there, I would advise you to get there uh, early. Larry? Thank you very much, and good luck. Thank you, Mike. You're terrific.